Welcome back to Humans of Grad School, the podcast about humans who happen to go to grad school. Being a grad student can often become a large part of our identity, but it's not the only part. This podcast aims to share the stories of the humans behind the research. Welcome back to our last episode of 2020, which is a little crazy to think about because I started this podcast maybe a couple of months ago. So um, yeah, this is going to be the last episode of 2020. It's kind of crazy to sit here and think about it. I realize that only a couple of episodes are out, but even then the fact that this podcast even exists now for me is a little bit crazy to think about, but I'm so thankful for everyone that's been so supportive and so lovely in the time that I've been doing this, and I'm just really excited to keep bringing stuff on for 2021, and hopefully, you know, 2021 will be a bit of a better year for everybody, but um, at this point, I'll just keep my fingers crossed, but yes, um, I will not be spending too much longer delaying from the episode, but I just wanted to thank everyone for their support over the last few months in getting this podcast up and running, and I really appreciate it, and I'm very grateful and lucky to be surrounded by so many people who are so supportive and are so lovely um, in having my back while I create this podcast and share everyone's stories. So... Um, without further ado, we'll get to the episode, and I will see you in 2021. Today's guest is Shannon, lifelong learner, critical questioner, and embodied thinker. Let's hear her story. I wanted to, I wanted to be a ballerina. Um, and I, I mean, I know that other guests have said that I feel like that's not super uncommon for like a white girl living in Canada to like want to be a ballerina when she grows up. Um, <laughs> And I went to kind of like a special public-private partnership school um, for that from like grade six until 12. And I never wanted to go to university. It was like never part of the plan, um, ever. (laughs) Which is why it's pretty funny that here I am now in university, doing a PhD, studying universities. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It is, it constantly makes me laugh when I think about like who I was um, like 10, 15 years ago. It's uh, quite the journey, um, but I think that it's all ended up where it needed to. Oh yeah. When did things shift? Like, okay, let's start. When, when did you stop wanting to be a ballerina? Um, I was, I was training in the U S um, summer after grade 10 or 11 and um, I got pretty injured and everything just kind of started to flip after that I like tried for probably like a good year and a half to continue to dance to um, kind of make it happen so I could have this career and kind of work through the injury and it just ultimately wasn't 
going to happen. Um, so I took a year off after high school to kind of get over that. Um, and then went to university after that. Uh, but so I, I guess in grade 12, I kind of had this realization that like, okay, if the injury is this bad and like, you're not able to kind of get over this, um, and have like a career where you're competing against people who maybe like don't have this injury that they have to manage, um, then you should think about doing something else. <laughs> and so I took that kind of year and a bit, I guess, um, bleeding into that grade 12 area to get over it. Though I would say you probably didn't get over it until maybe recently. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about the getting over it process because I find that if you're an athlete or a dancer or there's like an aspect of your identity growing up that is very highly entwined in who you are, to go through the process of realizing that you can't be that anymore is often a very heavy thing to go through. Did you experience that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I would say that like, I didn't move my body period for probably five years after I stopped like dancing and trying to be a dancer just because it was too painful to like go to a place where you're expressing your body or expressing anything through your body. And um, yeah, so I think I, I just avoided it altogether. And the part of what helped me kind of get over it was like two things. Um, going to university and I think why I suddenly became so interested in like academic study um, and just the experience of being at university was that all of a sudden like nobody cared what I was expressing via my body. Instead they were interested in my ideas and my thoughts and my opinions and that was like whoa like whoa I, ha I can have those ideas thoughts and opinions and people care and that was really um, transformative, I guess, for me to come from this lifetime of thinking that my only worth was coming through what I could do with my body in a performance setting versus now I can write something down and like someone will read it and care and be interested. And that was, that was really interesting for me as like a, a 19 year old to kind of have this flip and maybe come to that, that place of like having thoughts, ideas, and opinions kind of late. Um, I didn't really cultivate that through high school because all of what I was doing was just dance, 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 and with my body and kind of moving in that direction. So kind of a, like a late realization, and maybe I'm still going through that realization as well, um, as a lot of grad students are. But so that was kind of one part of getting over it. And then the other part was just finding new ways to move my body that felt good and felt expressive um, and felt better for me. So I have found that through um, teaching fitness, which is like what I do on the side. Um, of grad school. So actually, before we get into talking about your grad school experience and your research and all of those factors, let's talk about a little bit of who you are now. So you are someone that teaches fitness. Do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Do you like just who is Shannon? Yeah, I, I really identify as like a learner as kind of my first, um, my first point, I guess, um, any new kind of situation I'm in, um, new people like my first instinct is just like what can I learn um and what's going on here how can I kind of make sense of all of this so I think learner is my first kind of identification point and I feel pretty strongly about that um I would also say that I'm um 
like a, a very loyal friend. And that's important to me as well. I have few, but very strong friendships, relationships, um, and many that have lasted like quite a number of years. Uh, and I, I love those people very hard. <laughs> and so, yeah, a learner, a loyal friend, um, a questioner, a thinker, um, a mover. Now, are these all things that have always been a part of who you are? Or do you feel like you came into a lot of these aspects of your identity as you grew and maybe as you entered into grad school? That's a great question. I think the foundations for it were always there. Um, I think the, the environment that you put yourself in can either um, like bring out or kind of quiet other things. Um, and grad school has definitely brought out the like learner, thinker, questioner. Um, I think that, yeah, those foundations were there even when I was a teen. Um, I had like, I remember in, even in my, even in my ballet kind of um, coming up through high school, it was, it was very like training focused, but we still had like things like a student council. And obviously I was on that every single year that I was at that school. So like things like that, that the, the foundations of I think who I am today were there, um, but truly through my university experience and then um, in, a, in a maybe greater percentage, my grad school experience has brought that out for me. Um, of course, I think mover has always been there. I, my creativity side has always been through movement um, and less so through like visual arts or, or music or anything like that. I guess music a little bit I identify with, but um, yeah, my, my creative side has never been kind of visual arts. It's always been movement and physicality. So now is any part of this creative side, now that you're in grad school, do you engage with this in any way with your research or is this through your fitness teaching that you're doing? I'd say the creative part mostly comes out through um, what I do outside of my research. I certainly think that research is a creative process. Um, that's definitely where I would like put myself in kind of the qualitative world. Um, but I think like, I think that like I can be creative in my research and then have like my own kind of sense of creativity and what I cultivate outside of my work. I think ever since I entered grad school in 2016, I, I made a, I made a point of creating kind of my, my grad school world and then a community outside of that. Um, and sometimes those crossover, I would say kind of rarely, but what it did for me was like, give me a space where I can, I can like cultivate who I am outside of academics as well. Um, I'm not going to say that they, they don't influence each other at all because they certainly do, but that was really important for me to have kind of a, a life separation. And I think that came from like wanting to value uh, what I do as my work and not my life. Does that make sense? <laughs> um, I really needed that work-life balance right from the get-go. Um, so I wouldn't say that my, like I don't do research about movement, about bodies. I don't do that. So I haven't brought that into my academic world. Okay. See, it's so interesting you say that because I got into this conversation with another guest the other day where we talked about how a lot of the time as a grad student, a lot of our self-worth and a lot of our identity is tied up in academic productivity. So you've made that like distinction for yourself of like, this is my academic self, but this is my not academic self in some regard. 
Yeah. And you know what? I think that came from like, I wasn't even sure I was going to do a PhD when I was in my master's. It was kind of like I, the field that I wanted to work in is called like student affairs in Canada. Um, and it's kind of all of that stuff outside of the classroom, like careers, leadership, residence, like all of that. And that's really where I wanted to end up and maybe still where I do. Um, but I knew that I wanted to get a master's to go into that, but I was really ready to return to the field and like get my master's and be done with it. Um, and like things changed obviously during that last year of my master's, but I think because I didn't want to pursue an academic career per se, I was like, we need to have work-life balance. And like, I am not tied up in this. Um, and I'm working on that still. I think it's always a work in progress to like not be tied up in the work that you do. Um, but it's, it's definitely a priority for me. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So, okay. So now that we're talking about grad school, let's take a step back. You went to university after coming to the conclusion that, you know, maybe I will go to university. In that time, what ended up steering you toward grad school instead of something else? Yeah. So kind of in the last few years of my undergraduate degree, I started working in student affairs. Um, so I had a role. Um, I started as like a work work study student in like third year. Um, I did five years for my undergrad. So in third year, I started as a work study student. By fourth year, I had like a contract role um, and I was running leadership and mentorship programs at one of the colleges. I went to University of Toronto for my undergrad. Um, so they have the college system. So I was working at one of the colleges and I was doing um, like a leadership kind of certificate program for undergraduate students at the college and um, a mentorship program with Big Brothers Big Sisters. So I was running that. Um, in my fifth year, I worked in residence at that college. So I was like very tied up in that college's kind of um, culture and life. And I loved it there. And I remember one day I was sitting with my boss and I was like, man, like I love what I do in like all my extracurricular activities as well. And I love what I do here. And like, wouldn't that be cool to just like work all the time doing like the stuff that I love to do in my extracurriculars? And she was like, what do you think I do? <laughs> like, this is my career. <laughs> you could do this too. And I was like, oh, you are correct. Like I could do that. Um, this is your job. And I love this. So she kind of helped me see like, okay, yes, there is like a graduate's um, school ecosystem for this kind of in Canada. It's a very well-developed field in the U.S. Um, and like a, a very well-oiled kind of graduate school preparation machine um, for student affairs and kind of a growing one in Canada. So I started to pursue doing that program at OISE, the Student Services Student Development Program at OISE. And um, I quickly kind of decided that I don't want to stay at U of T anymore. Um, and I think that I need to look elsewhere. So I met a recruiter from the Faculty of Education at Western at a graduate fair at OISE. And um, we spoke for like 45 minutes and I shared my research interests. And in that time, he was like, you're going to work with this person and I'm going to have you come to Western and like see the campus and meet this faculty member. And I think that you're going to come to Western in the fall. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I came and he was absolutely correct in his assessment. The faculty member that he introduced me to has been my supervisor now since 2016 and um, she's incredible. And it, it was absolutely the right fit for me. Um, and I came here and what I also liked about this program was the um, 
the research aspect that doesn't really exist in the same way um, at Boise. It was mostly like a course-based kind of thing. Um, so that really appealed to me, the possibility to do research. I had had some exposure to research in my undergrad, um, like original research, and I wanted to continue that. So that's kind of how I started to think of grad school as an option was through um, practice, like through the work that I eventually wanted to do, but I understood that I needed, I needed some more time to like think critically about what it means to support students beyond being a student myself. Oh, definitely. Okay. So in talking about this specifically, let's talk about your research. What are you looking at? What are you hoping to gain from this research? Um, yeah, so I study education policy. And um, within that kind of field, um, I'm interested in policy networks. So um, how people, organizations, things, policies, money, discourses, how those things all connect um, or relate to one another in kind of a networked organization. Um, and I studied the issue of student employability um, and how that issue is networked. Um, so it's kind of a two prong interests of like the, the issue of student employability and the student experience in higher education as it's kind of organized by our obsession with employability and then how policy networks are created, formed, sustained, um, disrupted, reformed, all of those. Okay. So how are factors like this examined in your research context? Like this sounds like something that's qualitative slash maybe a discourse analysis of some sort. Like what are we talking yeah. about in terms of research methods? So, I call it a, um, a policy ethnography. So, I mean, and also like the theoretical body that I use, one of the, um, one of the kind of phrases is follow the actors. Um, so through kind of an ethnographic approach, um, which involves a lot of like document analysis, kind of following news, um, like tracking and tracing um, relations between different actors. Like you start with kind of known actors. Um, so I know that these organizations, these people, these policies exist, um, and I can start to trace their relations and then follow where they go um, and learn about new actors in that way. And that can happen also through interviews. Um, so once you kind of have some of that base information, starting to meet and interview um, the, the people who can give you information um, about the policies, um, other things, other structures that are in place um, around that policy and um, kind of help guide you towards the next. And then through that process, you kind of trace and map um, this, this network. I, I think I'm, I'm less interested in like um, an actual maybe visualization of like a network and more in describing that um, and then understanding importantly how that network works um, and how it works to ultimately like create the thing um, of employability. So I guess I, I fundamentally understand like through my theoretical approach that the issue of employability is what it is because of its relations through to other actors and through other things. Okay. So in this case, like, what are you hoping to get from all of this analysis and understanding the relationships between these larger macro actors and systems on student employability then? 
Um, so I guess most recently with um, the like emergence and stronghold of COVID-19 on our society, my, my work has shifted a little bit to um, prioritize understanding how COVID-19 has really impacted that network um, and, and ultimately like reshaped what employability is for us in the university. Um, and what's interesting about that is that we haven't experienced a disruption like this in that kind of ecosystem, um, in our ability to deliver programming, in the kind of um, just, I guess, disappearance of a lot of job opportunities for students seemingly overnight. Um, and now work looks so different. If we're gonna talk about employability and work for students, um, COVID-19 is certainly something that has to be addressed. So that's kind of where my work has gone in the last six, seven months. And um, what I hope to get out of that is mainly like an understanding of how it has disrupted and then how universities and policy can do their work better in the context of this. Um, now that we, like once we know, okay, what is employability kind of in the context of COVID-19 and how can we do this better? So I guess at this point, is it too early for me to ask you, are there ways that things can be done better that you already know? <laughs> um, so I'm still kind of, because of COVID-19, I'm still in like the proposal stage. I honestly, Monica, I had my proposal so close to being done in like April and then and I remember my supervisor and I talking and being like, well, like, I don't know like how long this is going to be an issue. And like, I don't really want, I remember saying to her, like, I don't really want to be like a, a pandemic issues researcher. You know what I mean? So it could be done. But then like probably three weeks later, it was like, uh, no, we got to make this like kind of the focus. So I've been working on like rejigging my work to represent that. So I haven't really done my research yet but i have been involved in other kind of peripheral projects with my supervisor because she has a lot of similar interests which is why we get along um and i don't know if it's necessarily my interest to like super like rank policy responses and um and like claim one is better than the other i know i said that in my <laughs> Well, how can we do this better? But more to think about like, okay, what's the impact of a policy decision that looks like this versus another one? And um, so one, one piece of work that we did, we published an article from this last year in 2019, uh, where we kind of um, analyzed policies from four different major actors in this, in this field and how they're representing the issue of skills and employability in students um, and how those different representations can like impact how we understand it obviously but ultimately like we can kind of see across the board that when we talk about students and young people and employability and skills um it's undergirded by this the same assumptions around um neoliberalism and the purpose of education and like what we believe about young people and um our concern i guess and my concern as well going into this into this work and approaching it from kind of a critical perspective is, and I mean, in total, like I'm not being academic when I talk about this, but we're obsessed with the issue of employability because that's how our society is organized. From a young age, we're told like, you have to go into something, you have to study something that's gonna get you a job. 
it's it's an organizing principle for how we operate in the world and how we pursue education. And I think I hit like I well I know I have concerns about that um, because what happens to education for politics and democracy and social issues? What happens to that when we abandon those to pursue issues or fields of study that will only make us money? Um, what happens to the arts? What happens to um, yeah, people who just like care about other people at the forefront rather than money. And I think like young people, I don't think that young people who are only pursuing money are doing that because they like don't care about other people. Um, they're doing that because that's how we've been taught to have a viable life and lifestyle, I guess. And even just to like exist in the world. Um, I can say that I like study these things and I'm critical of them and am still concerned about my own employability and like having a, a life when I'm done grad school and having a job. Like you can be, it's, it's a very meta experience to be studying this and like experiencing it at the same time. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah. Oh, it's definitely. <laughs> definitely. That's what I was about to say is like, it's such a weird experience to be examining this, but also be embedded in it like you are someone that is actively navigating and challenging and negotiating this system and living within the system while also examining it yeah and like when i worked like at at u of t before i came here i was like running and developing these programs that were developing like leadership skills which are not like leadership skills they were employability skills <laughs> um, that we were teaching under this label of leadership and um, there was not enough from me, not enough critical thought into like what was being taught as employability skills and to who and by who. Um, and that, that I think is kind of what drove me to grad school, just like a general uneasiness about that, like knowing that something was up, but then I needed to like do the grad school experience to like figure that out and then and like systematically start to un unpack and then piece back together this field that I started to really identify with. Oh, definitely. So what are you hoping will come from this? And I know like it's such a weird question because we never really know what's going to come from our research. Like analysis is so layered in so many different yeah. ways. But like, what is your hope? Um, I really hope to engage with people who work in student affairs and who do the work of, of building and um, developing and facilitating these employability programs in the university so and I consider that pretty broadly like through I guess if we're talking at Western like the Student Success Center like places like that um, that run these types of things but also like work integrated learning experiential learning facilitators like um, even like faculty who engage with experiential learning in their in their um, in their teaching that's kind of one group that I hope to really engage with so that's like who does employability at the university level and and how can they benefit from my research so hoping that they like can take something away from understanding the composition of a network that is in this um and ultimately how they relate because people who are in the world in the field likely know kind of on a basic level who's in the network like who are the important actors to engage with when you're doing this work um and what i hope my research can reveal is like how they are relating in the context of covid-19 um, how have things changed how has that network been disrupted and then reassembled um, then 
taking that out into the network and who are the other actors and how can they learn from understanding how this is all working. Um, then ultimately, like coming from the critical perspective, I'm interested in, in revealing a little bit the composition of the network um, and where the power is in the network and um, maybe who are some like surprising organizations, people who are um, doing work in that network and where the money is flowing. All those things are very interesting to me. Like during COVID, um, the like we charity scandal uh, around the Canada Student Service Grant was on my mind for weeks because it really revealed like when we're talking about like building skills for students in university, <laughs> then the money went everywhere but universities to do that work. And in particular went to organizations like we though like obviously this was revoked and that program was ultimately canceled. But in the moment it went to we who was developing like a volunteer program to give students grants. So then I had thoughts about like, okay, so these students have to work X number of hours or volunteer X number of hours between now and October to get this $5,000 grant. And then when you break all that down, ultimately they're making lower than minimum wage with like no employment protections nothing and then if they're doing this then they won't really have an opportunity to actually get employment because of the time commitment so I was like this is all wrong <laughs> this is all wrong and um, I'm really glad that that was like revoked and all changed but it's things like that that you can then see kind of woven into the fabric of this network of like questionable decisions around student employability and student skill development and ultimately like who students are and how they should be um, experiencing university as determined by these like political decisions is interesting to me. Oh, definitely. Actually, okay, let's talk about this a little bit more. I was originally gonna ask you like, what was it like being a student affected by the pandemic and having to rejig your research? But on top of that, it sounds like this pandemic has brought so many trains of thought and like insights to you and your research. Like, do you feel like COVID has affected you and I'm using quotation quote like fingers here but like in a more meta way than you just having to rejig your research absolutely um I think that I think that COVID gave my research a little bit of new life um I was feeling a little bit unmotivated kind of nearing like the end of my second year of my PhD kind of in a bit of a lull and um what I was finding difficult to, to describe about my research was ultimately, like, what's the problem? My, re my supervisor always, um, always asked that. She's like, okay, well, what's the problem here? And like, we understand that there's a problem with this like obsession with, with uh, um, employability. We understand that that's an issue. But to describe that to a public who is like embedded in this capitalist society where it's hard to get people on board with um, with the issue of employability. Do you know what I mean? Because anytime, um, I mean, a lot of, so a lot of grad students probably have their like elevator pitch that they give to people about their research. And I always joke about having like levels to my pitch based on like how people respond to the first level, then I'll like give them a little more. Um, so often I'll be like, oh, like I study student employability 
um, in higher education. And the first reaction from like 99% of people is, oh, we need people studying that because like none of these kids are getting jobs and none of them are like good at their jobs even when they get into jobs and university isn't doing anything for anyone. And you know what, if, if I could go back, I wouldn't go to university. And I'm like, oh, okay. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so like how we think about, or and I mean, this points to part of the problem as well is that we're told to go to university for a job, but ultimately, is that what university is for? And should it be for? Those are kind of the big like, philosophical questions we're dealing with. Um, and like, do universities have the resources to do that? So then when we leave and we don't get an immediate job that like makes sense with what we studied, then we get mad. And it's like, it's so complicated. It's so complicated. Um, it's so, it's, it's so complicated. I lost my train of thought too. Uh, <laughs> what were you asking initially? No, that's okay. I was asking in a more like meta way, how has COVID affected right. you? And once so, again, like quotation fingers with affected. So yeah, so it, it it's hard, it's hard to get people on board with being like, yeah, we should question this obsession with employability. So then when COVID kind of really disrupted everything and students overnight like lost jobs, lost employment prospects, or at least employment started to look very, very different for them, um, then we could start to get people on board with being like, okay, well, what does employability mean? Because it was such a static concept before. And um, I think so... It, it really, it really also helped me to have a deeper understanding of my theoretical approach um, because I started to see it in action. So, what my theoretical approach um, kind of sees is that we have to stop looking at things um, from like this coffee cup to a, a abstract concept like employability. We have to stop looking at them as static concepts and in, instead, instead, understand their relations and their network um, as as materializing that concept. Um, so I started to see it in action because all of a sudden co uh, employability was being picked apart and the intricacies of what it was were being revealed to me in real time. So it definitely gave me a bit of like a resurgence of interest and motivation in my work because it was like, it was just in motion all of a sudden again. It always kind of was, but in more of like a, in, in, in a much more black box way, I guess. It was just like employability was this thing and we pursue it and we have it and we engage with it in the workforce. And then all of a sudden it was like, we don't know what this is anymore. And it's being recreated by COVID. And so, yes, I feel like my research has benefited from it. Um, my research timeline, maybe not so much because I've taken this time to understand that and how I want to move forward. But certainly the research is, is renewed, I think, by COVID. And in, in, like a, in, in a way, because it just has become important, I think, um, and fresh and like no one else is really doing that. Anyone who's doing like pandemic research, this is kind of the first time is so yeah definitely <laughs> um it seems like it like rejuvenated like an excitement like i think it's so important for us to realize like 
How are we embedded in this culture that values us for our ability to produce work or do work in some way? Like why why is it that our primary focus is about being employable or doing work in some capacity, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. And you know what, going back to like what I was saying before about like creating a work-life balance, um, that's certainly also coming out of like the work that I do and being critical of, of um, only being defined by my labor. Oh, definitely. I think it's something that we all need to keep in mind. Like it's very, very important to have a distinction between only being that person that works versus being that person that works but has a life outside and understands value outside of the work that you are completing, right? And understand that like who you are outside of work can like it does impact who you are at work and what you're interested in doing at work. Like um, I don't think that I'm not doing research that's like so unrelated to like things that I'm interested in general, like politically, philosophically, like I am me at home and at work. And, but I also have like interests in both places that are kind of separate. Um, and I like to like keep them separate. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> okay. So along this train of thought, you know, thinking about where you were when you started grad school and thinking about where you are now, is there something that you know now that you wish you had known when you had first started in grad school? Hmm. I think that I wish when I started grad school that I felt more confident in the things that I knew. Um, and put less pressure on myself to know everything. Um, yeah, I think in those like first classes, being like intimidated by people who had years of work experience and like new things that there was no way that I could know as a 23 year old. Um, and like being open to like learning those things, <laughs> but then also like owning the things that I did know. I think that those were, that's what I wish I could like, go back and like do a bit of a mindset shift. But um, in terms of like kind of um, material things to know, um, I felt really strongly supported and guided by my supervisor. And part of that I think is because she approaches supervision as, um, as like mentorship and um, helping you kind of like cultivate an academic career if you want one. Um, so even if like there was a time where I was like not really interested in academic career, but she still approached our supervision as like, you're in one right now. So like, let's learn about this field. Um, and that really helped me like navigate grad school really successfully um, from the get go. I, I know that like, that's not the same experience for a lot of grad students in their supervisory relationships. And I feel really grateful that that was mine. Um, and it definitely, like, if you do go into an academic career and you have, I mean, for, for me at least, having her as a supervisor has, like, shown me so many things about mentorship and, like, how I would hope to um, interact with students should, should that be a position I'm in later. Oh, definitely. What does good mentorship look like to you? Um, good mentorship is flexible. Good mentorship is, like, student-centered if we're talking about, like, a a student faculty relationship. Um, it's, it's like personalized, like everyone's going to have a different kind of relationship. Um, 
it's about good communication, which is something that I need to work on um, in that in that relationship. Um, it's about it's about like engaging with each each person's interests. I think um, recognizing that people have lives outside of work. That theme keeps coming back. Um, giving people giving people space to explore and fail on their own and then rebuild after that. I think that that's great mentorship. Um, failure is inevitable and like all we can do is like support each other through it um, instead of avoid it at all costs. I think I've learned a lot through different failures. Um, yeah, that's good mentorship. Oh, definitely. So thinking about this now and maybe it's in thinking about this, you're positioning yourself as a mentor. But if there was one thing that you wanted to share with someone or words of wisdom that you wanted to impart on others, what would that be? Um, ask questions that interest you and don't worry so much. <laughs> um, my own personal mantra is stop worrying, Shannon. Um, like, you, you'll be fine. Um, yeah, yeah. Ask questions that interest you and like own that interest. Don't be necessarily like swayed um, into something else that doesn't interest you because you won't have the like um, the energy to pursue it long term. And, and yeah, don't worry so much. <laughs> This has been Humans of Grad School. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Humans of GS or Instagram at Humans of GS Podcast. If you want to get in touch, email humans of grad school podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.